Okay. Um, so we're going to get started tonight just by taking a couple of steps back as far as a review and, t- and just kind of remind us of where we've been in the last few weeks before business meeting. We were talking specifically about the Word of God and what is the Word of God. And we said uh, the Bible defines the Word of God as it's been revealed over the course of human history really in four ways. First, is the audible spoken word of God. I'm talking voice from the clouds kinds of words where Jesus is baptized, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration there as well. Uh, He is lifted up and transfigured and Peter and the disciples hear the audible sound of God the Father talking um, through the clouds as it were and terrifies all of them. Uh, then there's also the, the, the prophets where God actually tells the prophets, I'm going to put my words in your mouth. And when you go and speak, it will be my words uh, that you are conveying to the people. John tells us in the New Testament um, that Jesus Christ is the word of God, the living personification of the word of God. Um, made manifest to people and whatever he says is the literal word of God. It's the uh, I guess you would say the, the God's honest truth is what, what that is right there in Jesus Christ. Uh, so um, then there is the Bible, which has also been defined as the Word of God. Uh, so what he has left for us is authoritative, is, uh, is inerrant and infallible. We talked about that the, last, uh, the, the previous week um, before business meeting. And then what we have written down in the Bible, these 66 books, we can trust are authoritative that that is the canon that the Lord has left for us, that, that it is closed. We don't expect any more books to be added to that canon. And the, uh, the books that, would, uh, that, that some denominations or religions have tried to put in the middle or added to the Bible, we would consider uh, invalid because of the way that they came about. Um, they don't match the 66 books that we have in our Bibles. Um, Are there any questions about that that remain from the last few weeks that we can address? Maybe. All right. So with that, we're going to move into this week, and we're going to really ask uh, one central question. Well, really a couple questions, but really one main question, and the rest stems from that, is how do we know God exists? Now, let me be clear as to what I'm about to do and what I'm not about to do. this is not going to be a full-fledged apologetics course, all right? Um, that is really deserving of its own uh, series uh, of apologetics. This is really going to be, I guess you would call it apologetics light. This is sort of an overview of how we as Christians uh, have become convinced over the course of history that God does actually exist, that we can not only uh, be assured and be comforted that God exists, but we can know God exists, and that when we talk with other people, we can also give them the assurance that indeed God does exist. Um, I'm reminded of, of Luke writing his gospel, and he tells Theophilus, the person or groups of people that he's writing to, um, I have written this for your assurance so that you may know. Um, so he's done his homework and he's presenting to his audience a clear and concise um, account of Christ, his death, burial, and his resurrection and ascension. So we're really going to do some apologetics light type stuff. 
and just talk more about how we can be assured that God exists. The first thing we're going to start with is a series of scriptures. So like is our tradition, uh, I'm going to call these scriptures out and somebody's going to read them from the congregation. Romans 1, 19, 21, and 25. We'll come back to the bulk of this whole passage, but just those three verses, 19, 21, and 25. Who will take that? All right, David Maxwell. Uh, Psalm 10, 3 to 4. You got a whole list of Psalms uh, here for whoever wants to take it. Psalms 10, 3 to 4, 14, 1, and 53, 1. Who wants to take that? All right, Hannah Payne. All right, if you'll take those. Romans 8, 15 to 6. I don't have that up there, do I? I just realized that. I'm calling these out and I don't have it up there. Sorry, that helps. Uh, Romans 8, 15 to 16. Who will take that? All right, uh, Marion Smith, is that right? I get it right? Yeah. Marion Smith. All right, who has Romans uh, 1, 19, 21, and 25? Hold on to some of those. I know it's a lot of verses, but hold on to the thought that's conveyed in those. Hannah Payne, you have Psalm 10, 3 to 4. and That's a lot, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Romans 8, 15 to 16. Okay, so there's a couple of things going on in these passages that sort of ties them together. Let's start with David's that he read in Romans 1.18. David, do you still have that? Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Read that again. Just the first one, just 18. Oh, sorry, 119, sorry. For what may be known about God is manifest to them because God has shown it to them. What are these verses claiming about humans in general? There's no excuse not to know of God, right? And if you look at the passages as they kind of develop, it sort of leads you down a trail, which starts first with that verse that basically says that humans by default, by being born into this world, are given a, a base knowledge of God, 
All right. Now, we're not saying they always come to the right conclusions about God, and if left to their own devices, even would come to the right conclusions about God. What we're saying is that by default, they are born, there's something baked into us where we have a cognizance of the fact that there is a creator. And what happens as we go through those passages, if you even follow David's passage or that, he, that he read, uh, David didn't write it, but Paul wrote it, uh, Romans 1, even 18 through 32, what you follow is not only did he give them a base knowledge of the fact that he exists, but they actually denied him, and because of their denial, they're guilty, right? As you go Romans 1, 18 to 32. And then if you go to Hannah's passages, we're, we're dealing in the Psalms, which basically speaks to, uh, over and over again, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The Bible classifies this person who, who basically does exactly what's in David's passage, who rejects the knowledge of God that they're born with, calls them a fool. They have no reason to reject God. They're guilty. They're a fool. Right? And then Marion, read yours again, if you still have it. So we're born with this base knowledge of who God is. But when you get to Marion's passage, and if you track Paul's argument through Romans, by the time you get to chapter 8, Paul is arguing that for us who believe in Christ, we now have a, the Spirit of God resting in us. And what does that do? What's that? Yeah. It continues to bear witness not only that there is a God that exists, but who he is and how he has revealed himself to us. So now, that's not only just a generic knowledge of God, it is a very specific knowledge of God, right? So essentially, one of the things that we know about the existence of God is humanity has an inner sense of God, period. And then as we become a Christian, that the Holy Spirit continues more and more to grow us in our understanding of who this God is. Right? Um, question. If that's true, which I think it is, if that's true, what does that do to our sharing of the gospel? What does that give to us as we approach the unbelieving? <laughs> it should give us a head start. Explain that, David. Yeah, yeah. Within everybody, there's a, there's a, there's a knowledge, and, and so we're going out there trusting that. What did you say, Skeeter? It gives us a foot in the door. It's a, um, it's, a, it's a pathway in. I think sometimes, maybe, for some of us, uh, I think maybe probably all of us, I know for sure this is true of me, that there are times when I look at an individual and I think to myself, there's so much I'm going to have to convince them of even to get them to the point of sharing the gospel with them. And in reality, that's not true. Um, God's already given them a lot. 
<laughs> and, and all I'm simply doing is tapping into that and directing it to the right source, right? Uh, I, I want to say it was Spurgeon. I just remember this off the top of my head, so forgive me if I'm wrong here, who said uh, preaching is really just one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. Is that, is that Spurgeon? Um, and I think, that's, I think that's really true, that, that if, if everyone, if God has given them a base knowledge of understanding that there is a creator, and, and they're not coming to the right conclusions, obviously, and they're not going to do that on their own. They do need to hear the audible presentation of the gospel. But that being said, as I go and approach them, I'm really tapping into something God has already at his base given to them, which means that it's not beyond the pale for me to ask the question, where do you go to church? You will find that as far as gospel conversations go, that's a great place to start. Even in a, the darkest of the dark places on earth. Where do you go to church? Especially a place like America where Christianity, even just in our history, has visited, right? It might be a little bit harder in a country like maybe Africa or something like that where they have never heard of church or God or anything like that. It might be a little more difficult, but especially in America, in an atheist culture, to go and say, where do you go to church? Uh, it taps into something that they already know. And what I've found a lot of times is by asking that question, you get a lot of, well, I know I should go, <laughs> but, but, but I don't. And that opens um, pathways to the gospel. I was able to ask a, a man on a bus uh, coming back from, he was actually coming back from Africa. I, I happened to be on a bus by myself where the bus driver was from Africa. And, uh, and I didn't know this. I, just, I had just gotten back from Tanzania, and so I put my bags on the thing, and I, and I, I sat down. And he starts asking me where I went and what I do. And so I, at that point, when somebody starts asking me that, I'm like, okay, I'll share the gospel with him. <laughs> I mean, like, it's kind of obvious that's what the Lord wants me to do. So uh, I, uh, I said, uh, well, I was, I was over there actually training pastors. Where do you go to church? <laughs> and, and he goes, uh, he goes, oh, I don't go to church. And I said, why not? Which is a great second question. Why not? <laughs> um, and he said, uh, I, I don't believe in Jesus. And I said, why not? Which is a great third question. Uh, <laughs> why not? Uh, and he said, I'm a Muslim. And I said, how long have you been a Muslim? Which is a great fourth question, I think. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so he went on talking about all of the various religions he had been over the last years of his life. And you could tell immediately that he was, he was searching. And it enabled me easily to get to a very clear gospel presentation with him. Let me tell you why you're searching. This is what you need to find. But you could tell that he was searching. In his heart is built a pathway to try to find God, right? Um, so it's, a, it's something that, that they're given, and we can simply guide them to the right place just by asking questions and helping to steer the conversation. So very simple. Questions about that? Comments? Yes, Jeannie. What? Uh, we're going to get to that. Okay. All right. Uh, so, and I'm not saying I'll be able to totally answer or even totally satisfy them, but 
Uh, we, will, we will talk about that in just a minute. Uh, let's read the next set of verses. Who wants to read Romans 1, 20? All right, Richard. Who wants to read Acts 14, 17? All right, Blake. Who wants to read Psalm 19, 1 to 2? All right, Jeff, Bell. Richard, when you're ready. Acts 14, 17. And yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Hmm. Psalm 19, 1 to 2. I think you need to be a narrator. That's a, <laughs> that's, a good, <laughs> that's a good narration voice right there. Uh, okay. Um, so what do those tell us? Those verses together, what do they tell us? It's on display. Creation itself, everything that is created testifies to the existence of God. One of the things that I've always found most encouraging, um, especially in seasons of doubt, and, and I want to be clear about that because I think there's a, there's a misconception in the church that Christians are always 100% sold out on the truth that God exists and that, and that, and that he exists in the person of Jesus Christ in, in front of us on display, crucified, buried, resurrected, uh, and ascending to the right hand of the Father. That everybody always 100% of the time is sold out on that truth. And it's not true. We waffle. We doubt. Sin itself as the Bible points out time and time again, is doubt. Right? Yeah. Yeah. There are times of struggle and, and hardship where you're really wrestling as you study the Bible of, I mean, it could be anything from the existence of God himself to the truth of Christ and that, that we believe. I mean, all kinds of things we wrestle all the time, but one of the things that I'm most encouraged about as I read Scripture is the, the biblical authors knew this was part of the human experience, and, and in seasons of doubt, what they prescribe is that you look around at creation. I love that. <laughs> in seasons of doubt, open your eyes and look around you. You would have to be a fool to believe this came from nothing, right? I find that incredibly encouraging and probably the most convincing of all arguments is I just look around. Um, so creation, Scripture tells us, creation testifies to God's existence over and over and over again. Um, now, there's another 
aspect, too, that, that we need to visit. This isn't going necessarily into Scripture, but I do think they appeal to scriptural truth. And there are some traditional arguments that have been made um, for the existence of God. And really, in the traditional arguments, there's tons of arguments that, that apologists make for the existence of God. And really, they break down into several categories, uh, ways of thinking about God's existence. And then we're going to go relatively quickly through these, and we're not going to go incredibly in-depth because, like I said, they are courses in and of themselves. But um, the first is the cosmological argument. Anybody heard of the cosmological argument? Scripture? Blake? I expected that one. All right. <laughs> um, the cosmological argument that um, cosmos obviously being created order, everything is created. Um, the cosmological argument would be an argument that says everything that you see has a beginning. Everything that you see has a beginning. There had to be something that gave it its beginning. Right? Very simple. Everything you see has a beginning, and there had to be something that gave it its beginning. God is that cause. So you'll hear arguments from time to time that appeal to this way of thinking. Everything that you see has a beginning, and God is the one that started all of those things. Right? Nothing is an infinite cycle. So um, how is a tree grown? It comes from a seed. Where does that seed come from? It comes from a tree. But there had to be something that initiated that whole process of tree seed, tree seed, tree seed, tree seed. We're saying God is that, uh, the great causer, all right? Um, then there is the next one, the teleological argument. Anybody heard of this one? The teleological argument, all right? Uh, telos is the word that means uh, purpose or end or goal. Um, the teleological argument says that uh, everything that you see has a purpose. This is where arguments like um, can a tornado uh, come in and put together a Rolex watch with a bunch of spare parts? Uh, no, everything that you see looks to be designed, that it has intention, that it has a, 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 a purpose behind it. And if everything that you see around you uh, screams that it has intention or has a purpose, there had to be a mind that put that thing together, right? That would be the appeal. I think this is actually probably one of the better arguments floating around our, our society today, teleological arguments. Questions about either of those two? Does that make sense, how I laid it out? Okay, good, because this next one might not. <laughs> The uh, ontological argument. Uh, Blake's going to stand up and tell us everything about Anselm's ontological argument. Uh, go ahead, Blake. No. Uh, <laughs> he's like, I can. I'll do it. Um, the ontolog an ontological argument um, begins with a definition of God, a being by which none greater can exist, a being by which None greater can exist. All right. If you begin with that definition, and the person that doesn't believe in God would grant you that God would be a being by which none greater can exist. And then you were to say, can you, 
conceive in your mind of God? Can you think of, in your mind, uh, what God would be like? Can you think of that in your mind? Sure, we can. We can come up with a concept in our mind of God, who he is. All right. Is it greater to exist or to not exist? It would be greater to exist. If you can think of him in your mind, then he must exist. (laughs) Because that would be greater, right? Does that make sense? Yes? Yes? Blake, did I get it right? Did I nail it? All right. That's the ontological argument. Now, here's, here's one of the problems where people in our generation or in our world will go, what? Uh, <laughs> we don't really, in our, our world at least, use that a whole lot. Um, but you have to understand the world that that came from, that that argument came from. Made a ton of sense then. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us now. But there are some scenarios where you might use this or where, you might, where it might be helpful in talking with an atheist. And here's where I would use that. We, we might not use the whole argument, but we might say, uh, an atheist might say, uh, I don't believe that God exists. And I don't think that's true of an atheist. I don't think that's true. I think every single person worships something, Right? So if I were to to use the ontological argument for just a moment, I I might prove to the atheist that he actually does worship something. What is the greatest thing that you can conceive of in your mind? What is that thing that you think of in your mind, which is the greatest of all things, that was the reason that we exist today? I, I think a lot of atheists, at least in our world, will probably say things like, matter. Matter existed before all things. It had, there was a big bang, and we came into existence. Yes? Me using the ontological argument is proving to him that that is his God. That's what he worships. That's the thing that's greater than all other things. That's the reason that I exist. Does that make sense? I know that's, that's sort of strange. But does it make what, what is that? Well, now all we're arguing over is who is the right God, right? If I, can, if I can help him to see that what he's doing is basically defining matter as God or other things as God, then now I just need to correct his assumption as to who God is. Now we can have a battle over Scripture or a number of other things. But the hardest part, I think what Jeannie was pointing to, is when, when somebody says I don't believe in God at all. Um, because now we're on two different, we're on two different planes. We don't think in the same, we're not in the same ballpark. And what I need to help that person see is that they actually do believe that there is a God. They believe that a, a God exists and that they, they do worship it, even though they don't necessarily call it God. They're appealing to something that is greater and more powerful than they are. Uh, in some cases, it's Mother Nature. Right? Mother Nature is going to respond and she's going to be wrathful and if we don't you know, change out our toilets and our light bulbs. Um, and so, so it just, it's, my appeal to them is to help them see that they are actually 
uh, worshiping something. They're paying homage to something that is more powerful than they are. Even if I think that thing pales in comparison to God, it's still the greatest thing that they can conceive of. And it actually is, is real. It's, it's there. I, I, that's sort of, it's sort of hard to wrap our minds around, I think. But yeah, Timothy. Say that one more time, a little bit louder. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Appealing to the ontological argument, also sprinkling in some cosmological argument in there. It's good. Make sense, David? Sure. Well, I, it does it, I, I don't know. I mean, depending on where they're coming from. Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, it it might be matter or it might be something else, but it's really helping them to see that, in fact, they do believe in a God. That what the same kinds of things that I would say of God are true of God, you would say you would attribute to other things. Right. Whatever's pre existent to them, more powerful than them, uh, worthy of, in some cases, worthy of paying homage to. Right. Well, I think I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think what what has stemmed from things like the Big Bang is an appeal to preserve the universe that's around us or the the, the world that's around us. Um, so uh, essentially, that's still appealing to matter as being the great thing that governs us, rather than God being the thing that governs us. Um, I think there is a, they, they actually, the, the, uh, the atheistic worldview that says a big bang happened, right, I think is the same thing that produces things like, uh, like well, Mother Nature's going to seek its revenge on us if we don't um, basically improve our world, I guess, it's going to destroy us. Um, I think that that argument actually ends up in the end producing it, and so all my appeal is really just to help them understand that what they're saying is greater and more powerful than they are is also what they're, what they're worshiping, is what they're, uh, yeah, what they're paying homage to, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Questions, thoughts, concerns? Yeah. Go ahead, Millie. <laughs> I loved looking at nature and thinking of God. But when we're asking someone to do that, and they're questioning us, and they look at Genesis, and it says, you know, God created the plants, but then later on he created the sun. You know, um, it's kind of hard. I mean, I know the books are out of order, but... I didn't think that the story of Genesis is out of order. And then I, I thought of that. I was reading it the other day, and I thought, hmm, that throws a cog in the wheel. That, uh, I guess I'm confused. What, 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 what throws a cog in the wheel? How can plants grow without the sun? 
Um, so, out of the gate, Genesis 1, let there be light, right? Separated light from dark. I mean, I don't know if this answers your question, but the other part of my appeal to the God of the Bible is that he also is sustaining all things. If he is, like we talked about in the uh, both cosmological and teleological argument, if he is the one that has created it and caused things to come into existence, the same would be true of its continual existence, that he sustains it. Um, we see that in Scripture, that he sustains it. Um, so uh, by his hand, they hold together. All, all things hold together. So I think um, I would say even re- with, with or without sunlight, it all uh, holds by his hand. Okay. Uh, he sustains all things. That's... Um, the God of the Bible, but I would also say Genesis 1, what is it, 3 or 2? Let there be light. <laughs> would, would, is it 2? 3? 3. Let there be light. Yeah. Yeah. Still, I would Sustaining light. <laughs> right. Yeah. Either God is the source of light or can substance. Right. Yeah. And I would, I would also say in the created order, um, there, there's absolutely nothing that God needs to sustain something. Does that, does that make sense? Like uh, for a plant to be sustained, he does not need the sun. Simply his will. That's how it came into being in the first place, right? <laughs> it's by his word. So uh, Lazarus is dead for four days, and Jesus says, uh, come out, and he does. And that doesn't happen, right, on a regular basis that I know of. So um, I would say even simply by his word, it, it continues to hold, right? So questions, comments on that, thoughts? Did I already go? Last is the moral argument. You'll hear this one a lot in today's day and age. Uh, you have an appeal, an appeal to justice. Um, you have uh, an awareness of what is right and wrong. Um, God is the source of right and wrong. So the very fact that you have an appeal to right or wrong, or that you have some concept of what right and wrong is, um, comes from a standard somewhere. You're appealing to some standard. So if somebody would say there is no God, um, but would also say Hitler was wrong to do what he did, um, by what standard are you appealing to that would say Hitler is wrong? Um, And ultimately, that's a really tough one to answer if you say that there is no God. Um, the dignity of humanity really comes back to they're created in the image of God. Yeah. Question on that? More? Yeah. Go ahead, Jeff. Um, would you say that the awareness of good and evil came originally from God's design of the beings and the spirits of which we are composition? Um, yep. <laughs> I sure would. <laughs> um, the... 
the awareness that evil exists um, would probably have been born in them. They realize that there's something uh, to be had in that fruit. Um, what exactly that is, uh, I think, is it came after the, the fall. Yeah, post-fall. Yeah. Question. Does that make sense? Moral argument, right? Um, the point of all these is that, uh, that existence of God does make logical sense. It's not illogical to believe that God exists. Um, now, here's the thing that we have to underscore and can't underscore enough is that these arguments are incapable of bringing someone to Christ, right? Uh, you are not going to be able to argue someone to Christ. It just will not happen, uh, which underscores our fourth point. I want to read these scriptures here. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, who will take those? 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. all right, Susan Maples. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 and 2, 5. 1, 21 and 2, 5. Go ahead. Uh, yep, Vicki. And Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. All right, David Williams. All right, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Uh, when you have that, I forgot who has it. No. Oh, Susan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 21 and 2, 5. Vicki Thompson. This is 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those uh, who believe. Right? Yep. All right. Faith does not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay. So what do those verses have as their uh, cohesive tie-in? What, what brings them together? What is that saying about what, where we're at, and what needs to happen in salvation. Yeah. So when it comes to all of these arguments, at the end of the day, God enables us to be persuaded of his existence. So this is the reason that you can't argue anybody into the kingdom of God. God enables us to be persuaded by his existence. So what does that tell us about our evangelism? What does it tell us about prayer in preceding evangelism? The whole time we're telling somebody the gospel, we are relying on the power of God the entire time from beginning to end, even before we enter into the conversation. We pray here weekly for people's relatives, daughters, fathers, that are lost. 
And the reason that we pray for them is we hope that at some point a, a conversation that's, that's, uh, that's brought up before them or whatever it is, that God uses that to open their mind to the gospel. And unless he breaks through, we are hopeless. All of our arguments fall flat. Uh, you might actually find somebody persuaded in this day and age by the ontological argument. But that's not because the argument is so good or because you're great at delivering it. It is because God has enabled us to hear the gospel and believe it. Right? Questions? Comments, thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. Where, um, you know, I may be glib, but what I'm, you know, who knows? Uh, I may have a lot of knowledge, maybe. But still, yeah. it's not that wisdom that I bring. Yeah. I mean, I'm not responsible to save that person. Right. I mean, it's, it's plain. But right. Yeah, at the end of this, and, and I love what Paul said in the First Corinthians passage is that what we're uh, proclaiming is at its heart a foolish gospel. Here is a guy lived a perfect life and was crucified on a cross. He died, he rose from the dead, he ascended now to the right hand of God where he rules. You cannot see him, but if you place your faith in him, you will be saved. You wouldn't think that that would appeal to anybody in this day and age. And yet, what we see time and time again is people coming to a saving knowledge of Christ by the foolish proclamation of the gospel. And he has used completely imperfect people who are all equally as foolish <laughs> and, and sinful and fallen and totally imperfect to proclaim this gospel to the wisest of people, and yet they come to a saving knowledge of Christ. So that means that you don't need PhDs and seminary degrees and, you know, more education doesn't solve the problem at all. It's the simple proclamation of the gospel. It always has been and always will be until Jesus comes back. Last question, how much can we actually know? How much can we know? There's two things that I want to get clear here before we go to our application, why this matters. First is Psalm 145.3 and Psalm 147.5. Who will read that? We'll take that. Go ahead, Olivia. Psalm 139.17. Olivia, will you also take Psalm 139.17? Take the first two lines there. Uh, who will take 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12? Richard Thomason. Uh, Millie, will you take Romans eleven thirty three? All right. Go ahead, Olivia, nice and loud.
precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. All right. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 12. Is it? Hmm. Okay. Uh, Romans eleven thirty three. Millie. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. What are those verses saying about God? Incomprehensible, right? So the first thing that we need to make clear is we can never fully understand God. All right. The reason that I think this is important is because uh, you might be convinced otherwise of, some, of many theologians <laughs> who, 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 who might attempt to convince you that we can know everything there is to know about God and, and what we know about God we have got figured out. Well, if you have him figured out, then that is not God that you have figured out. All right, very simply put, I know that one, that one's probably pretty obvious to most of us, all right, is that we can never fully understand God. I think probably most everybody in this room would say, we're, we're, we're in agreement on that. The next one is also really important. Who will take Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24? Not everybody all at once. All right, David Maxwell. Who will take John 17, 3? All right, uh, uh, Olivia, Vicky, will you take Hebrews eight eleven? All right. How about First John five twenty? All right, Stephen Simmons. And whoever has Jeremiah nine twenty three to twenty four, go ahead and read that when you've got it. Who's got next? John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. All right. And 11. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. All right. 1 John 5, 20. So what are those verses saying? That we can know him. We cannot fully understand him, but we can 
actually know him. And the most encouraging part about that is, is when we come to a knowledge of God, a saving knowledge of God as revealed to us in his word and by his word, we're actually knowing God. We're not just knowing facts about God, not just knowing biographical information about God. We are actually knowing him in a very personal way when we profess faith in Jesus Christ, when we read the scriptures. They actually testify to who God is, truthfully and rightly, and as we read them, we can actually really know him. And the reason is why? Because he has revealed himself to us. We talked about that the last few weeks. Without him actually revealing himself to us, we would be wandering around in the dark. But because he has revealed himself to us, both through his, through his, or through his audible testimony, through his prophets, through Jesus Christ, through his word, we can actually come to really have a relationship daily with him. This same God that is inconceivable to us, we cannot fully wrap our minds around and we don't have all the answers for we can really know him. That's encouraging. It should be encouraging to all of us. I, uh, I, I don't know how exactly this connects, but I thought it was a great quote and I needed to put it in here. Uh, <laughs> uh, in regards to this word of God, where we're coming to actually know God and understand who he is, this inconceivable being that we cannot fully wrap our minds around, yet we can continue to investigate uh, Gregory the Great has this quote that I've always loved. Scripture is, as it were, a kind of river, if I, if I may so liken it, which is both shallow and deep, wherein both the lamb may find a footing and the elephant can float at large. That's a great quote, isn't it? <laughs> um, that what we're discovering in scriptures is something that we can never exhaust, and if we, have, if we do think that at some point we have exhausted it, that's not God we've discovered, right? But as we dive into Scripture, we're discovering more and more about a God we could never fully, fully understand, fully comprehend. But we are really coming to know him truthfully through his word. Make sense? Why does this matter? Um, first as we've talked about in our sharing of the gospel, in our talking with other people, God must open the eyes of the blind. As he has revealed himself to you and to me, so he must reveal himself to them. I know every single one of us has relatives that we are praying for, that we hope will come to know Christ, and we are dependent on God revealing himself to them in order for them to know him. It's the only way we come to a knowledge of God. First. Second, theology really does matter. When we're, we're coming together and we're talking about who God is and discovering different things in the Word, and, and maybe even we have questions or thoughts or different whatever, we come back to the Word, it is important that we start to compile these. What do we actually know about God? What's actually true about Him? What does His Word actually really say about Him? All of these things that we're talking about, these questions that we have as we discover answers in the text, that really does matter. 
Because in it, we're actually coming to know who God is. He has revealed himself to us really through his word. And as we read it, we come to know who he is. And therefore, our endeavors in theology and understanding God through his word really does matter. And the reason why I think that's important is because there's, there's kind of a growing just discontent in the church that says theology is really boring <laughs> or it's, it's not really exciting. That doesn't, that doesn't really grind my gears. I don't really, that's, that's for somebody else. But what we're doing when, we, when we're studying the word or when we're opening the Bible, when we're talking about who God is, we're just, we're really discovering the creator of the universe here. Um, this generation uh, is, and I don't just mean millennials, I mean, let's put it in the last hundred years, uh, is really the first that has thought it is the pastor's duty to keep us all awake. Um, Everyone prior understood that it was my job as the listener, as the one opening his Bible, to stay awake. It's on me uh, to be attentive. Uh, It's on me because I am really reading words of life in the Scriptures. I am really discovering more and more about the God of the universe as I open up my Bible. And I'm the one that has a hard time staying awake, being alert as I read the Bible. And the reason is because at the end of the day, it's very hard to stay engaged, but it's my task to stay engaged because this that's in front of me that I'm reading is really the words of God. It is him, the creator of the universe, revealing himself to us. Yes? Make sense? Questions, thoughts, comments, concerns? Fears, hopes, dreams? <laughs> Expectations? Lamentation or woe? I'll even take some pet peeves, maybe. <laughs> no pet peeves. Uh, I love these kinds of conversations because if, if, a, if a person in front of me has put themselves or has declared that they are a Christian, now we are having a whole different conversation. If someone has said, I am a believer, and then has a litany of things that are becoming evident that are incredibly sinful, uh, lack of a desire to even know who God is or whatever, now the conversation is, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you said you were a Christian. So help me understand why these things are, you know, really inconsistent in your life. Um, now we're talking as brother, brother, sister, sister. Now we're talking on, uh, in a, inside the church realm. And so while uh, uh, there's a, a, surely some passages, obviously, in Matthew 7 of, of, you know, don't judge and things like that, you know, uh, Paul says when it comes to the brothers, in 1 Corinthians 5, when it comes to people who declare the name of Christ, I am to judge. That's what I'm doing, right? That's what we're doing in a relationship in the church is saying, 
your actions do not line up to what you say you believe, very bluntly. So those conversations, I think, are even easier to have. I mean, they're harder. They're, they're you know, much more grueling, but um, I think they're much easier because I'm not worried about even arguing any of this stuff. You told me you're a believer. Um, this is what the Word says. Why are you not living up to it? Yeah. That's, that's gut check time, I guess. <laughs> Still dependent on the work of God. Yeah, you never leave that, ever. Yeah, and, and it, it, may be true, it may be true that they attend a church and they're not a Christian. That happens, actually. Uh, but it may be true that that's the case, in which case we need to help them understand what it means to be a Christian. And, and, and maybe that, that, in the end, persuades them to Christ and they, they believe, you know. But, yeah. Any other questions? Questions or comments like that? Yeah, you know, like the World Series just started. I need to go. <laughs> let's uh, let's pray.